Now, as we pay attention to your word, Lord, may it enrich our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I hear the word epic a lot. I've started using it too. You guys use that word, epic? Anybody on top of that? It's currently used to emphasize that something you did or that happened was sort of beyond the norm. Uh, Usually it's not something truly epic. It's an exaggeration letting folks know that you had a great time. Paul's life, the Apostle Paul, was filled with real epic moments, but we've arrived in our study at a truly huge turning point. Paul decided to visit Jerusalem a fifth time, but along the way he was warned by prophets that chains and imprisonment awaited him there. Then, in the temple at Jerusalem, Paul participated in an unnecessary Jewish ritual that put him in a place to almost be killed by the angry mob. Instead, he was arrested and remained in Roman custody for the next several years of his life. Because of the consequences of those two decisions, commentators don't know what to make of it, whether Paul was being led by the Lord or by his own desires. It's easy to criticize Paul, to say he should have listened to the warnings or at the very least refrained from the ritual in the temple. I've taken the approach that Paul was in God's will for his life and that he knew uh, what God's will for himself better than anyone else. And so, um, as we'll see, well, for example, listen to what Paul said of himself in Acts 20, 22 through 24. He said, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So we see here that already there had been testimony from the Holy Spirit that chains and tribulations awaited Paul. His interpretation of it was that he was being bound in the Spirit. Was he being stubborn? No, he was just being a servant. Paul said, nor do I count my life dear to myself. He wasn't a thrill seeker. This wasn't a death wish. He was following a certain course. He described it as a race, and he was committed to finishing it. The fact that chains and tribulations awaited him was nothing new. It was always a relatively safe prophecy to say trouble was in Paul's future. I'm not saying that any of these prophecies were false, but um, if Paul was around, you could say, hey, I see trouble in your future, and uh, you'd be accurate whether you were prophesying or not, because uh, everywhere Paul went, uh, you know, you read in the book of Acts, there were persecutions and chains and tribulations. Uh, And so he was used to that. That was the normal Christian life for him. He didn't go out seeking trouble. Uh, You know, he wasn't... Uh, looking for it, it just found him because he was serving the Lord. And so we learn from Paul at least that a prophecy of trouble ahead isn't necessarily a message to stop or to turn around. It's simply but wonderfully a comfort to know that Jesus is with you in and through the trouble. Uh, And I don't know how that might work out in your life at some point, but normally... um, If somebody gives you a warning, you want to heed that warning and avoid the trouble that's ahead. Uh, But Paul understood that the warning was just letting him know that when the trouble came, 
it was in the will of the Lord for him and that the Lord was definitely with him. Because, you know, all of us, and we've seen it in Paul's life as well, even this veteran missionary and, and apostle, all of us have doubts from time to time if we're actually in the will of God. God, is this really where you want me to be? It can be after you've been at a place for 10 minutes or 10 years or, you know, whatever. And you start thinking, God, did I make the right choice? Did I turn right when I should have turned left? You know, should I have taken the five or the 99? You know, that kind of a thing. You definitely don't want to take the 99 in your life if you're supposed to be on the five, you know, that kind of a thing. Personally, I'd like to be on the 101, but, you know, we're not. So, uh, you know, we have those doubts in the Lord. So if the Lord, you know, lets you know that there's going to be trouble ahead, our natural, normal, you know, reaction is to, well, let's avoid that. Let's go in a different direction. But Paul was mature enough to know that the Lord was just letting him know in advance that there's going to be trouble, Paul, but I'll be with you. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 21. Now, it came to pass that when we had departed from them, and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kaz the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Finding a ship, sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail, and when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left and sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre, for there the ship was unloading her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. So here in Tyre, you see an example of what we just said, an example of the way the Spirit was speaking to the church about Paul. And I think these prophecies were more for the believers, they were more for the little groups of believers that Paul was meeting with than they were really for him. They were there to remind them that Paul was exactly in the will of God when the tribulations and chains caught up with him. It's it's kind of humorous to me when I read the modern commentaries and the modern commentators, uh, all not all of them, but a lot of them who want to go off on a tangent and talk about how Paul was not in the will of God um, because the Holy Spirit was warning him, but he went anyway. And and really, uh, the Holy Spirit was letting the church know that Paul was going to be in chains when he got to Jerusalem, but that he went anyway, and he was an example to them of somebody who said, my life isn't my own, it's the Lord's. And if the Lord wants me to be his prisoner, then I'll be his prisoner. Uh, He said, none of these things move me. And so the Spirit was speaking to the church. And it's sad, really, that the disciples tried to dissuade him from going. Uh, The statement that they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem then can mean one of two things. Spirit either refers to their own human spirit, which naturally wanted to see Paul kept from harm, or spirit refers to the Holy Spirit, but the disciples misapplied the warnings. They assumed the warnings were a prohibition when they were really just a forewarning of what awaited Paul. Uh, And so... Um, again, in our own human spirit and our own human energy, we don't want anything negative to happen to our friends and family and missionaries and ministers. And so if we think that they're headed into danger, uh, you know, we, uh, we want to stop them from going. Uh, or the Holy Spirit can speak and we can misapply uh, the word of prophecy. Uh, not understanding that it is uh, that it's not really a warning to not go. It's just an understanding of what's going to happen when you get there. And so Paul eventually arrived in Caesarea. We pick it up in the middle of verse eight. 
We came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. I, I don't know, Agabus is a guy I really like. You know, he, he appears a couple of times in the book of Acts. He's what we might call flamboyant. Well, actually, we would call him uh, Pentecostal, basically. I call him a prop prophet. You know, there's prop comics like, uh, uh, who's the guy that breaks watermelons? Gallagher, yeah, he's, you know, doing so. This guy, Agabus, he, he couldn't just sit there in a meeting and say, you know, I'm, I'm sensing that... Um, Paul the Apostle is going to be bound when he goes to Jerusalem. No, this guy, he had to get up and say, thus says the Lord. And, and how do you get the belt off of Paul the Apostle? He goes over to Paul and he takes his belt. They'd met before, so Paul probably thought, here goes Agabus again. You know, he's going all Pentecostal on us, you know. Somehow he gets Paul's belt and he wraps himself up and he, he does this, you know, visual prophecy. And so he's kind of old school, more like the Old Testament prophet. Uh, and, um, you know, we, uh, I, I, it's, it's difficult sometimes, you know, churches, all churches have personalities. I don't really want to get off on too big of a tangent with this, but churches have their own personality and certain things happen and they happen a certain way. And then when something slightly out of the ordinary happens, you know, it, it, it's like, man, what are we going to do about that and stuff? And so, um, uh, you know, we're, we're. We're conservative here. I don't know if you realize that or not. Uh, you know, we're, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit and the exercise of the gift, but we're ra- relatively conservative compared to Pentecostal churches. But, you know, if somebody, you know, acted out a prophecy, I don't think it would be the end of the world. Uh, you know, it, 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 different people have different styles and stuff. And so, uh, on the other hand, Pentecostal churches sometimes, you know, if, you, if, if, if you're not the loudest person in the room, uh, no one's going to hear you. Uh, and so we have to be a little bit careful that we don't just fall into a personal style of doing things and then think that other people are weird for the way they do things. Um, it doesn't mean we have to adopt everything or bring everything in. Uh, one of the reasons that we don't get real Pentecostal, well, the big reason is, of course, we're reading the word and trying to make application of what Paul says but I always tell the story of when I was in Japan and a lot of good work was being done in Japan among extremely conservative Japanese churches uh, by Pentecostal churches Assembly of God and other Pentecostal denominations and so we were at a meeting uh, Japanese church with a bunch of Pentecostal brothers and sisters and uh, we were going to pray before the meeting started and um, the lot fell to me to pray, you know, and, and so I said, well, let's pray. And just as I got ready to pray, all the Pentecostal brothers, man, they just went for it, you know. And so, so I'm getting ready to pray, and this one guy, and I am not making fun of anybody right now. I'm just, this is just what happened, you know. And, and uh, so this one guy, he starts going, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, and he just, that's, he did that, 
He just, you know, and then another guy next to me started praying out loud in tongues and the guy across the way was, oh, hallelujah, Father, hallelujah, God bless you, hallelujah, Father, hallelujah, God bless you, hallelujah, Father, hallelujah, God bless you. And the problem was I couldn't pray because I was just being, it was like sensory overload. And then I realized it doesn't matter if I pray because they're not listening anyway, you know. And so I don't know how I got there. And so I thought, you know, I just, I can't hang with this. You know, it's okay. They're, they love the Lord. They're used to that. That's great. Um, you know, and then, of course, they, they think you're, you know, someday you'll wake up to the real ministry of the Holy Spirit, you know. Someday, some, someday God will touch you and you'll be able to, uh, you know, interrupt everybody while they're praying too, you know, like they do. But we're all brothers. We're all, we all love the Lord. We all have our own style and way of doing things. And uh, it doesn't make somebody wrong. Now, there are some things that we would look at and say, well, that, you know, let's not interrupt each other. I think Paul would say it's a good idea for people to be heard. But, you know, we can have a, a lot of liberty in this area. And so Agabus, great guy, always right on. All of his prophecies were 100% accurate. He just went, you know, he just went for it. He said, man, I, I just, you know, I'm that kind of a guy. And so verse 12, now when we heard those things, these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. One quick point, the disciples would not have said the will of the Lord be done if they thought Paul was out of God's will. Paul was definitely on the path God had chosen for him. He was definitely being led by God. Now what's interesting here, uh, if you look in a concordance, Strong's Concordance or a Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament words, you'll find that the word for breaking, where Paul says that they were breaking his heart, uh, it doesn't, uh, it, I guess it means the same thing, but, but uh, from a slightly different viewpoint, it actually means to deprive someone of strength and courage or to incapacitate them, especially for enduring trials. And so what he meant was, um, you guys are weakening me for the trial ahead. Because I know that chains and tribulations await me in Jerusalem. Every city I go to, the Holy Spirit is reminding not me, but the church, uh, you know, that that's what's going to happen. Uh, and by you urging me to avoid that, it's actually weakening my resolve to go because I, I don't want to hurt you. And so in wanting what they thought was best for Paul or better than tribulations, they were weakening him for the eventual trials that were coming. We need always to be strengthening our brothers and sisters because trials are on everyone's radar. Don't try to dissuade them from doing the Lord's will because it might be uncomfortable or even dangerous. It only weakens them. Uh, and, and so we need to listen carefully. We don't want to encourage people to do crazy things, uh, but uh, we need to be thinking of others in terms of how can we strengthen this person for the trials that are ahead. Uh, and if they seem like they're choosing a path of walking with the Lord that is going to lead them into some difficulty, um, then we need to be strengthening them. If, we're, you know, if they're convinced that it's the will of God, then let's come alongside. Uh, you know, too often everybody wants to sink to kind of a common denominator of just 
you know, letting life kind of float along. And sometimes the Lord is calling us to a greater service and we need to encourage others rather than discourage them. Uh, You've probably, at some point in your Christian life, maybe felt like the Lord ministered something to you or told you to do something or go somewhere and then you shared it with other Christians and they look at you like you're some kind of nut. You know, like, oh, really? The Lord told, how did the Lord tell you that? You know, and Christians can be the worst people in the world to encourage other Christians. They're just really, you know, you can be a real downer as a Christian, you know, and and so we want to encourage people, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and strengthen them because when they get where God wants them to, if they don't get where God wants them to go, that's gonna create problems at some point in their life because they're gonna miss out on some lessons and learning and growing that the Lord had for them. But if they go there without that strengthening, uh, that's going to be a problem too. And so let's strengthen each other. Let's, let's think about what the Lord is saying to one another and strengthen and, and not be breaking each other's hearts. Now, Paul arrived in Jerusalem and found there was a rumor circulating about him. Verse 20 of chapter 21. They said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. They have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Uh, Estimates range, uh, they're all over the place, but there's maybe 25 to 50,000 Jews by this time uh, who had believed on Jesus Christ in and around Jerusalem. This myriad, we're told here, still kept the rites and rituals of the law of Moses. Among them, rumors had festered that outside of Jerusalem, Paul encouraged Jews who believed, go ahead and abandon the law of Moses and live more like Gentiles. Uh, And and so the idea was that Paul was, um, you know, sort of a hypocrite. That when he was in and around Jerusalem, he acted like he had real respect for the law of Moses and the rites and the rituals of the law and its formalism and all that. But when he was out in more of the Gentile area, you know, he would tell Jews, just forget about all that. That's, you know, you don't need to be doing that. Kind of like the opposite of Peter who got into trouble by, you know, hanging around with Gentiles until Jews came around and then he all of a sudden, you know, wanted to uh, be separate and stuff. And so, uh, now, what's interesting about this, I think, is uh, all of us need to uh, not be shallow and we need to, we need to start thinking things through. Because what Paul is going to do in a minute is get involved in helping some Jewish brothers in a Nazarite vow in order to show that he has no disrespect for the law of Moses. But if you sat down with Paul and said, you know, Paul, do I need to, you know, should I be keeping the, the law? Should I be going through these rituals? He would say, well, you don't need to. No, you don't have to. Do what you want to do. Uh, and people mistake that, uh, you know, for him being wishy-washy. Now, Paul was never wishy-washy. He was never two-faced. He was never duplicitous. He was never hypocritical in his ministry. He, he simply looked at everybody and you know, learned about them and analyzed them and thought, okay, I want to minister the grace of God to you, the grace of salvation. I want to help you grow in your walk. And so if you are 
you know, wanting to kind of exist in this area of still keeping some of the rituals, still going through that. I can understand that culturally because of being a Jew. As long as you understand that this isn't necessary for salvation, it doesn't save you, it doesn't sanctify you, then that's fine. I'm not going to criticize. But, you know, the minute that you say that it brings salvation or sanctification, then I'm going to have to argue with that. But if you're out here and you're a Gentile, I'm certainly not going to say, hey, why don't you and I go and take a Nazarite vow? What do you think about that? They're cool, you know, and, uh, you know, he's not going to do that either. And so I can see where you'd look at Paul and say, well, over here he's doing this and over here he's doing that. Well, that's because he's encountering different people at different places in their walk with the Lord. Now, a lot of times, you know, your friends or people will ask you for counsel and, um, you know, sometimes there's not black and white answers. And it's like, well, you know, this is what the word says and I can support you either way, that kind of a thing. And, and so Paul, you know, he, he, this rumor was false. He wasn't really acting differently um, in, in order to be a man pleaser. He was acting differently because people presented uh, different uh, maturity to him and he didn't want to hurt the conscience of any weaker brother. Uh, nor did he want to bring anybody under bondage to the law. And so what's interesting, regardless of the great things God was doing through Paul, the believing Jews in Jerusalem were stumbled by rumors. I mean, we know a lot about the testimony of Paul up to this point. Uh, the, the beatings and the stonings and the shipwrecks and the preaching of the gospel and all of the journeys he'd been on and all the great work he had done that the Lord had done through him in the Gentile regions and all these things that Paul was doing totally filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, miraculous things. And he gets to Jerusalem to come and encourage the church at Jerusalem and they said, oh, Paul, man, fantastic. What a wonderful ministry. And by the way, there's a few people here who think you're two-faced. And um, I, I mean, I know that the Lord is using you in mighty ways, unprecedented ways, but some people think you might, you know, be disrespectful to the law of Moses. And, you know, I, if you're Paul the Apostle, I don't know how you even keep your cool in a situation like that. I mean, I, I have trouble with that. I admit it's a fault of mine. And, and some of you have known me for a long time you know I have a little face that I make at moments like that. And I don't mean to do it, but I try, I try to compose myself, you know, when, when, and, uh, and a lot of you have known me for a long time, you're composing yourself, aren't you? I say, yeah, I just because this is unbelievable to me that anybody would say this or that this, I mean, this, really, this is the issue? This, is, this isn't important at all, but it, it is to somebody. And so, you know, Paul probably made his little face uh, and then he decided he was going to minister to these people. Uh, and so in verse 22, what then? <clears throat> the assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. 
Then Paul took the men and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now I will say that the, the, Jews, the Jewish leaders of the Jerusalem church were walking on a razor's edge here. What they say here is true, but they're still putting a lot of emphasis on keeping the law. They're, they're saying, hey, Gentiles don't need to keep the law. That was clear in the council that we had. Uh, but, and Jews can do these things if they want to, but it's, it's clear that they're putting a little bit too much emphasis on the keeping of the law. And so, I mean, if you want to find fault with anyone in this story, maybe you should look to the leaders of the Jerusalem church who made this suggestion to Paul in the first place. Why not just tell the Jews that what they were hearing about Paul was false. That's the way to stop something like this. So, so you're hanging out in the Jerusalem church, you're a leader in the Jerusalem church, and people come and they say, oh, you know, we've heard that Paul is doing this. And maybe you should say, you know, Paul's doing a really great work for the Lord, and I know Paul, and, and he has a real respect for the law, and he puts it in proper perspective. So why don't we not get involved in this rumor that Paul is a two-faced, hypocritical, duplicitous person. Why, why don't we do that? Or, hmm, how can we mollify everybody and get everybody on board? We'll have Paul act like a Jew again. And I bet he'll do it because he wants to be all things to all men and stuff. And so, you want to fault somebody, fault the leaders of the church. Um, Paul took the high ground. Four Jewish believers in, Ju in, in Jesus had taken a vow that was prescribed by the law of Moses. The fact that they were to shave their heads indicated it was a Nazarite vow. The fact they needed to be purified indicates they had somehow become ritually defiled during the period of the vow. It was easy to do, come in contact with blood or death or walk over an unmarked grave or anything like that. They would therefore need to offer certain sacrifices in the temple before they could complete the prescribed period of their vow. It's not unusual for someone to sponsor you by providing the funds for your sacrifices. The leadership of the church affirmed in verse 25 that it was not necessary to do this, but if Jews wanted to continue in their rituals, they were not discouraged. And I guess my position too, a few times over the year I've told you that uh, for a while, and, and it's, still, it's still out there, there's a lot of people who want to return to kind of the, some of the old Jewish rituals. Uh, a lot of folks are discovering they have Jewish roots. They never knew that before and maybe they went to National Geographic and they did that, that swab, you know, to find out your genetic path uh, and uh, they find out that they're somewhere along the line they were related to the Ashkenazi Jews and so, so now they feel Jewish and that's great, you know, Ancestry.com and all of that and, and then they start getting into some of the rituals and they start keeping the Sabbath or doing different things and, and uh, that's fine right up until the point where they start telling you that you ought to do those things too because that's what makes you more spiritual. Uh, and, and I just, you know, I can't hang with that uh, because it doesn't make you more spiritual and, and uh, it never has. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Jews wanted to continue in these rituals fine. They weren't discouraged, but it wasn't necessary. So James and the elders felt Paul could participate without violating his own conscience or principles. Seemed like a win-win situation, right? And I commend Paul for taking the high ground, and this was a solution to the situation. 
You know, maybe they tried to quell the gossip or to, to deal with it head on and the people continued and they thought, well, how about this? Let's bring peace uh, to the fellowship. Paul, would you be willing to do that? And Paul was thinking what he always thought. I think we can safely say that he wanted to be all things to all men in order, order either to save them or to serve them. In this case, he was willing to become as a weak Christian in order to win the weak. I have trouble with that. You know, I, I, and I think a lot of us do. We think, hey, I, I'm tired of that. Let these people become more mature. I don't want to give up my, you know, maturity or position or habit or whatever it is. And, you know, we need to be more like Paul and think, well, without giving in to the thought that, you know, that these people think they're being saved by this, I still want to minister to them so that they're not stumbled. Now, as we'll see next time we're together in this, a misunderstanding in the temple is almost going to cost Paul his life, and it does cost him his freedom as he is arrested and sent to Rome for a prolonged period of time. Or did it cost him his freedom? He was the prisoner of Jesus Christ. If as Christ's prisoner, the Lord wanted him to be Rome's prisoner, then that was fine with Paul. And so Paul, serving the Lord, the prisoner of Christ, and if he... If the Holy Spirit was telling him, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested and put in chains, then he was resigned to that because that was the Lord's will for his life, and he would be the Lord's prisoner one way or the other. Uh, you know, I mean, if you're Paul the Apostle, I guess you could look at it as, a, as an exciting life. You never quite knew where you were headed the next day, to prison, to a dungeon, to a stoning, to a shipwreck to a beating, to a robbery, uh, you know, to an infirmity. Uh, I mean, he had a, he was kind of like a, you know, I'm surprised he could find anybody to travel with, tell you the truth. I mean, he was like a bad luck charm from a natural point of view. I mean, any boat you got on was subject to uh, shipwreck. Uh, any city you walked into, there was going to be a riot, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, he just was doing the Lord's will. And so if, if the Lord wanted him to be a prisoner of Rome for a while, uh, so be it. Something to meditate upon, we read it earlier. Paul said of his incredible trials, none of these things move me. Uh, the question then is, what would move you or I get us off course from following the Lord? And the truth be told, um, you can't really answer that question. You, you don't know what might have the effect of moving you. I mean, it be, it, you know, it's, a lot of times people, they look at a situation and they say, man, I don't know if I would have the grace to go through a situation like that. And you know why? Because you don't have the grace to go through that situation because you're not in that situation and God just doesn't give you extra grace that you, you know, need uh, to do things. And so you, you, you can't really say, well, what would move me? Well, if this happened or if this person did this or if this happened or that happened. Um, and so you just have to be ready by walking with the Lord uh, day by day so that when whatever it is the devil has planned against you comes, you can say, yeah, this isn't going to move me. Uh, there's, there's no place else to go. This is a pretty big trial, but... Uh, it's not going to move me because I'm ready for it. I'm keeping myself ready by walking with the Lord, by guarding 
my heart, by keeping my heart focused on him so that when I get into the trial, when you get into the trial, then you can, and people say, man, how, how are you doing this? You can say, well, none of these things move me away from Jesus Christ. Uh, I mean, that would be silly anyway to move away from him because in him is my only hope. But uh, so you, you can't think ahead and say, well, I hope this never happens because I don't want to be moved. You just need to think, uh, what can I do today to be readying myself for the inevitable trials that are coming? Because, you know, you don't need a prophecy. You don't need Agabus to take your belt off right now and give you some prophecy. You know that trials are coming in your life. Jesus said what? In the world you will have tribulation. And so he's given you his prophetic word. And you've got it every morning when you get up. When the mercies are new every morning, but you also hear the Lord saying, if they hated me, they'll hate you. In the world you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And so you know that it's coming, but you can't not walk with the Lord. You can't hang back and say, well, forget that. I'll just keep my mouth shut, keep my head down. I won't tell anybody I'm a Christian. I'll keep a low profile. No, you have to go out there and walk with the Lord and serve the Lord and be the Lord's prisoner. And so you are Paul the Apostle, maybe not on such a dramatic, epic scale, but we're all Paul the Apostle in that sense. And I think all of us want to say and do say in our lives, none of these things move me. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go into our time of prayer.